Let's talk about politics, the environmental science, global warming, constitutional rights, social and economic challenges, money, power, choice. Nature does not compromise. Free routes, free heat waves. Sea levels are rising, and it is. Come on, climate change. This is the future of the next generations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk About Climate, a podcast where we talk about climate change and how it relates to all of us. Join us, Change the Chamber Fellows, as we talk with scientists, grassroots campaigners, politicians, and more as we open up the conversation on climate. I'm your host, Alexandra Gonzalez, and we're joined by our special guest, Jennifer Cardenas, from Southern California's Inland Empire, uh, specifically Fontana, where we'll, be where we'll be discussing the lived life experiences of those who live in frontline communities. Uh, which are communities that experience the most immediate and the worst impacts of climate change and are often most often uh, communities of color, indigenous and low income people. Not only is Jennifer a person of rich and vast experience, but she has also dedicated herself to working within social impact efforts, uh, but is also specifically working in the intersections of climate change efforts as an as an organizing representative for a national nonprofit organization and this is let's talk about climate so hi jennifer i wanted to first begin by thanking you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and hold space for this conversation uh, this is of course a climate focused podcast channel However, today is a special episode as it is part of the Hispanic Heritage Month celebration, which to me, I find the name Hispanic Heritage to hold a sort of underlying hidden component of erasure of indigenous people, as well as a glossing over of the violence that Central and South American individuals have experienced, uh, who this month is supposed to be celebrating. But before we get into topics, I wanted to start by giving some background of how we know each other and then go into your background and your lived experience as a woman of color living within these frontline communities. And then we can end on your current work and some future hopes uh, that you might have. We first met while we were both finishing our undergrad and a friend of mine, Kaya, connected me to you because I was looking for a motivational and experienced person from the Chicana Latinx community to talk to some of my club members at the time to, to provide them with wisdom and a general sense of belonging within our higher education journey. And I know many of my members were so thankful and several of us were brought to tears after hearing your strong and kind and uplifting words, uh, essentially saying that there is a space for people like us, either children of immigrant families or just people who are born in between spaces of Latina culture and American culture. Uh, can you first tell me where your family is from and what it was like for you growing up and navigating your way through higher education and maybe the experiences that your family had not had the opportunity to experience themselves? Yes. So, muchas gracias. Thank you for having me here. Um, it's great to see you again. And it's great to see where you're at today after your long academic journey. It's inspiring to see young people like you in spaces like this, having these conversations where you're able to amplify our voices. And I appreciate that. 
it's something that I really look forward to this conversation with you. Um, how do we start when we talk about how did I get here? Where's my family from? These are questions that, you know, I feel safe talking about, but in other spaces, it's always like, but where are you from? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here, um, the conversation is my family is from Jalisco, Temastian, Totatiche, small places in Mexico. Um, they came here, different journeys. And now I was born here in California. I went to school here in Riverside. I grew up mostly in the Inland Empire. Some, my journey also took me to live in Los Angeles as a child. But what I realized is education is not something that we were taught. Education was not something my parents experienced when they came to this country. They came here as adults. So for me, I had to experience the American educational system on my own while also trying to navigate understanding the culture that I come from. One of the things that I think is interesting is we're labeled uh, like first gen, right? Mm -hmm. Like first generation college students. According to the census, first generation is really our parents coming to this country. So we're considered second generation. But when it comes to the academic journey, we're considered first gen because we're the first ones experiencing what it means to be in the education system. And then after that, looking for higher education. So higher education is something that one, a lot of our community members don't know how to navigate. You know, we're told we're supposed to go to school from K to 12, but after that, it's really difficult for us to even learn what are the paths that we wanna take. And I'll tell you, I'm a non-traditional student, which means I did not go to college right away. I went to college, I went to community college and I was like, um, these, this conversation is not for me. I don't feel like I belong in these spaces. I don't feel that when I came to this community college and they talk about history as though my ancestors were the people that were defeated and they're still mm. othered in this language yeah. that I'm gonna sit here and just, learn to take it and it was it was a really hard um experience mm-hmm. at the same time i'm from a friendly community so i have to face all these other things that are impacting not just my health but our community's health eventually i did go back into higher education or getting a higher education because i realized that while i was protesting or while i was talking to my representatives specifically here in fontana um, I was told things like, yeah, but how do you know? What's your educational background? And let's make this very clear. An educational background does not mean that you are better and more non- knowledgeable than anybody else has a lived experience, right? Hmm. Sometimes people think, well, if you have this document that says you went to this prestigious institution, you know more. That's not true. What I've experienced is, yes, I hold, and this might be a little plug, right? I do hold an Ivy League education for Columbia University, but I can tell you right now that I've learned the most through all the community members that I talk to, to all the organizers that are from here, the, the richness that they have to share about the impacts that we're facing. That's what's most important. What I learned at college was that we can be there. We should have been allowed to be there a long time ago mm-hmm. and that and that really, it's it's really more of, um, I learned how to criti- critically think. I learned how to take complex information, digest it, 
and then explain it to other people. The biggest thing I learned was being able to get this knowledge and give it back to my community. I don't know if I answered all your questions. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Maybe if like you could uh, describe or define for people what exactly it means to be a frontline member in a community, a frontline community member. So a frontline community member or a frontline communities are communities that are directly impacted by environmental components. For example, all of us are impacted by poor air quality, but people that live next to rails, next to warehouses, next to airports, next to power plants, for example, they're frontline communities because they face the brunt of that impact. So for example, when it gets hotter, people will experience their allergies are worse. Sometimes it's not just the pollen. Sometimes it's actually the particles in the air that are reacting to the heat. Who faces those particles the most? People who have um, big old trucks parked next to their neighborhoods and they're idling. And that, um, that, carbon, that carbon is impacting them. It's getting hotter. They're bringing, breathing it in. People that live next to rails, they're breathing all that in. So those are our frontline communities, people that are directly impacted impacted the most so while we're all impacted they tend to also be low-income indigenous communities or historically black and brown communities that are impacted where are freeways freeways are not in the wealthy communities right Mm -hmm. freeways we find them where usually in communities that were redlined historically or communities where black and brown used to live so that's what a frontline community is Uh, as I mentioned before, that there was a controversy surrounding uh, the verbiage of Hispanic Heritage mm-hmm. Month. Um, essentially, from what I understand the controversy to be, is that the term Hispanic refers to Spain and the people people's connection to being Spanish Spain. Um, the Spanish essentially were also the colonizers who came over to the Americas and stole and massacred the people who were already living on this land um, in Central and in South America. And a good article that I further described as if people are interested is uh, 2021, an NPR article called, yes, we're calling it Hispanic Heritage Month, and we know it makes some of you cringe by Vanessa Romo. Um, As someone who has studied at Columbia University, arguably one of the most prestigious colleges in the country, if not the world, have you come across this controversy in discussion or in your daily life interacting with the people who get labeled Hispanic? And if you have, could you describe what you've heard or the discussions around this topic? Um, I wish we had more time because I could give you a series on how this... um how this language just really entrenches so many different um, places in our history and also how it's impacting us today. One of the things about this article is that I think there's also a link that tells you, you know, it's only 6% of the employees there even identify as Hispanic slash Latin, Latinx. Mm -hmm. And there's also another, within within NPR. the NPR, Mm -hmm. As employees right so when they say some people find it cringe it's even kind of like comical because Mm. it's like when you say some people you really mean how many of your employees if it's six (laughs) percent right yeah um this you know that's important to really take into consideration 
when we talk about who gets to decide how people are labeled. So when we talk about like Hispanic, Latinx, Latin, um, for me, all of them are erasures. Mm -hmm. They're erasures in the sense that it is words that are used to make all of our cultures palatable to one centralized ideology. Mm-hmm. So when when you meet someone, usually when you're from community, they say, oh, soy mexicano, mis padres son de aquí, or my parents are from Mexico, or my parents are from El Salvador, or I'm from Ecuador, Peru. Then you start realizing, wow, we're kind of similar, but we're not. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we eat different foods, we have different traditions. Even within that, we have different cultures, we have different ethnicities. There's mm-hmm. um, There's a variety of different indigenous languages, right? Yeah. So when we hear people tell us, what are you, or are you Latino, Latina, or even if they get upset with Hispanic and those those terms, it's really people that want to like ensure that language stays what it is. And let's get real. What happened? Why do we know Spanish today? Because exactly what you said, colonization happened, right? People came to South America and there's this argument that we need to keep Spanish, you know, respect the sovereignty of Spanish as though making it, as though changing it today into something that's more inclusive because some people want to use Latinx mm-hmm. or making it um, encompass their own identity. Maybe Latinx or Latin is um, preferred by people who speak mostly English or only English. Yeah. Even this idea that you're supposed to speak Spanish to make you part of our community is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's still glorifying this colonialism but in Spanish right it's like Spanish edition of colonialism (laughs) because the reality is even English itself is not a language that is official in our country there's no official language for this country so why are we going to you know have people tell me that I have to respect the sovereignty of Spanish because I respectfully disrespect (laughs) that ideology I am not going to exclude the indigenous people, their language, Nahual, any other language, mm-hmm. or yeah. even cultivate a language of my own to create inclusivity for my community, mm-hmm. just because colonialism is so strong in our communities that even they use terminolo- terminology like no sabo kids. No sabo kids is this idea that there are kids that are here that no longer speak Spanish. When in reality, there are kids in Mexico, there are kids in Peru, there are kids in Honduras, Ecuador that don't speak Spanish either they speak Mm. their indigenous language are they less Latin less Mm -hmm. Hispanic less Latinx they're not Mm -hmm. it's really like how are we allowing people to identify us how do we even self-identify today at 36 I find myself in a place where even even when I was a child I was like I'm Chicana my parents are from Mexico I know the the Chicano movement I know Mm -hmm. what it was I know what it looked like I want to be a rebel but today Mm -hmm. I'm like Okay, but we need to. We also have to acknowledge, you know, the history of that, and how can we cultivate our own movement? Language is all made up, you know. Yeah. I can make yeah. up a word, and we could use it. We use mm-hmm. we use swag. We use that's lit. <laughs> yeah, we use yeah. that's sus, <laughs> and it's so normalized. But when it comes to self identity, or even being able to cultivate your own inclusive um, ideology of what you want to learn when you want to maybe decolonize your mind and learn more about possible ancestors that you have, who has the right to tell you that you have to respect this one language Mm. that has a history of colonization? 
when we ourselves are descendants of both of those lineages and not we as a you and me I mean we as in a lot of people and the I don't want to speak for everyone yeah yeah but communities yes yeah. so I mean we could really get into this but <laughs> that's kind of like my two cents on it and we hear it a lot I really like to advocate for people to realize we're in 2023, language is fluid, language changed. And before colonization, we didn't speak Spanish in South America. So I would love people to like move away from, pero aquí hablamos español. Well, mm -hmm. some of us really let's acknowledge where does Spanish come from? How has it impacted our cultures? And how are we really, you know, connecting to our culture if mm -hmm. one of the biggest divides is claiming that there's a certain way of being able to identify as a person. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I, mean, I could keep going, but you know, <laughs> no, it's, it's important Any... that we have this, you know, I think this topic at large is, is not talked about enough and there's not a lot of like critical thought that goes into it. Cause just like you're saying, there's multiple layers, there's different perspectives and just choosing one doesn't feel right. All of it needs to be acknowledged and brought up. Um, so yeah, no, that's great. Um, and thinking back to maybe when you were growing up, uh, kind of shifting now away from the words and more into the physical landscape, um, what was your built environment like? Uh, was there ever talk about climate issues in your neighborhood uh, with neighbors or with friends? Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest, um, one of the things that people find very surprising is that we all talk about climate issues. And growing up, I remember less warehouses. And as I got older, I started seeing more warehouses. We in Fontana are directly impacted by the amount of warehouses that are surrounding us. Our mayor and our city council have continuously voted to increase the number of warehouses under, under the facade that it's going to bring jobs because mm. they believe my community is not ready for mm. higher education that they're not ready for jobs that need more thought. Mm. Um, it's really unfortunate because these are things that they're actually quoted on. I didn't say exactly what they said, but pretty much that's what they're calling my community. And the reality is that a lot of us can't even find jobs here because they are just warehouse jobs. And nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, but how do I advocate for my community um, with the education I have that is beyond just logistical work? So when I talk about like, why do all communities already talk about climate issues? I think back when I was younger and people say I have asthma or it's really difficult for me to breathe or my eyes are itchy today or, you know, so-and-so's neighbor, he has cancer now. The thing is, climate issues is not just what is happening in the environment, but how it impacts us. Because asthma, cancer are direct results of climate issues. They are the warehouses that are being built here with no real um, protection of how the air gets purified, how the trucks that come in and out 24 hours, because we're basically the Amazon of California, of the world, really. The Inland mm -hmm. Empire, I want to say, has over 170 million square feet of warehouses. Maybe you could also... That where, is... Where is it located in California? So the Inland Empire, we are located very east of Los Angeles. We're probably, we are the biggest county um, in California. Mm -hmm. You know, I think demographically, uh, geographically, sorry, mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the size, but we're also the 
county that has the most warehouses. Um, we have, we're, right now we're fighting to stop the expansion of our airport because literally the San Bernardino airport is expanding not for passengers, but for cargo. And mm. how does that, that layers when you have more cargo coming in, that means you're going to need more warehouses. You're going to need more trucks. You're going to need the train to run more. And what does that lead? It leads, it circles back to our climate issues. Our climate issues being the direct results of how we experience it, how our air is impacted, how every day parents have to check air quality before they can mm. let their kids go outside of school. Yeah. Back in the day, I remember um, when I was a kid, we had rainy days. If it's raining outside, you can't go outside. Mm -hmm. Today, kids have air quality days. If the air is bad, they mm -hmm. literally can't go outside. Because the last thing a teacher wants to experience is a child having asthma or having an asthma attack in, in the middle of a playground. And these are very vast experiences. And I've seen it because I've tutored when I was younger, but I've also volunteered my time. And I've seen how dangerous it is to just see a child having an asthma attack mm -hmm. and not knowing who's their teacher and who has the, their inhaler. These are direct impacts of our climate issues here especially in California when we talk about air quality yeah that's so true I mean I honestly can't in California I mean we're already also going through like a drought so I can't even remember the last time that we that I heard class was being canceled on for rainy days but air quality or like wildfire season I feel like the season has been all year long <laughs> there's no season anymore of wildfire it's just like the entire year um, and then reporting on what days are like so bad that it's dangerous to be outside. Um, yeah, just crazy. And uh, now when we are back in, you know, 2023, how can we see that the landscape is different? I mean, I, I talked a little about my experience with wildfires, but for you who is working directly, you know, day in and day out, talking to community, um, what conversations have changed, if anything, and what physical or environmental makeup has changed from growing up till now, you going and working in the communities with this um, groups? So I've been organizing, I want to say I've been organizing since I was 13. I say that because at around 13, um, my city was trying to force my, my family and my neighbors to sell their home in order for them to create, they didn't actually specify if it was gonna be a warehouse or if it was gonna be more housing or if it was gonna be a school. They said it was gonna be a school, but we never really saw the documentation that's at school. We ended up winning. But since then I realized how much I didn't know about the world and mm -hmm. how much I didn't know about how, where we live can be so impacted by just five people sitting in a table at city hall saying, you know what, we're going to vote against this. Mm -hmm. So when we look at 2023 and what's different today, unfortunately, there's a lot of differences. We are, I think the Inland Empire is considered like the biggest logistic location. And with that, with that, it doesn't mean that we have the best unions. We have amazing unions, but not everybody is allowed to unionize like mm -hmm. Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, it also means that we have some of the worst air quality we've ever seen in a very long time. The reality is that when we talk about environmental issues, it's so layered. I talked about a few things earlier, but one thing that we don't talk about is how do we get electricity? How are me and you talking today, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, 
there's power plants all over um there's power plants all over the state and i want to say that about 70% of those power plants are located in communities that are frontline communities so that means that how we get our energy is directly impacting people who live there because we're not moving away from gas and we need to move away from gas. So when we look at the landscape today, you could even see on a map that California, there's a few places that are impact that our ozone is impact. And guess what? The Inland Empire is pretty up there when it talk when we talk about ozone impact. So how much sunblock do I wear? Maybe not enough, <laughs> seeing how drastic it has changed and how the environment has changed. Communities today have told me you know, their kids have nosebleeds more than ever before. Their mm-hmm. kids, not just children are being impacted by our elders are being impacted. We're seeing a drastic change between our older community who are already, um, who were already devastated by COVID. And when we say like black and brown communities, low income communities were impacted the most by COVID, it's not because they were just susceptible mm-hmm. to it um, because there's more of it in that location. Sure. No. It goes far beyond who had to work, who had to work, mm-hmm. who was forced to work um, to put food on the table to, you know, we talk about um, maybe not having to pay rent, but that didn't mean they, they were able to provide food. So they were forced mm-hmm. to work. Second, if you live next to a power plant, an airport, a warehouse, you're still going to be impacted. So you're more susceptible to mm-hmm. things like COVID. You're more susceptible to other type of respiratory diseases we have the highest rate of cancer that's also associated with our air quality so we have community members that tell us there's some community member that tells us her partner is going to be on a machine for the rest of their life that's it what do you what do you do when back in the day we didn't even have the same amount of warehouses and let me give you an example in Fontana there is about I think 13 warehouses that are empty right now That means that the air quality we have today is not even what it could be once those 13 warehouses get rented out. Mm. So we're seeing the new era of how our environment is not just being impacted by our local representatives, but also how it's vastly changing because of this idea that since this community has always had warehouses and power plants, then you know what what's a few more yeah yeah it's just you know it's people like me that do the work their Mm -hmm. their environment but yeah yeah they normalize this language that they're sacrificial Mm. communities but when (laughs) you know they see terms like sacrificial what they're really saying is that there are communities that are worth more than others because when Mm. we look at where where are these power plants located where are these rails located where are these um where are these warehouses? Where are these airports? Airports that hold cargo, not just airports like LAX, right? Yeah. Um, when we when we start seeing the numbers and we start seeing the historical background of these locations, we start realizing that there are communities that they are willing to identify as lesser than. In a country where, you know, 2023 is supposed to be like, you know, mm-hmm. equitable and restorative and we're not yeah. even there yet. Yeah. yeah, I also think of like freeway systems and interstates. Um, oh, hundred percent. In, in the Bay Area, I mean, Oakland was a beautiful, thriving metropolis city. Like 
a capital, if not it's competing against like Sacramento and San Francisco. And then they had all these interstate changes and freeway systems just straight through neighborhoods. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's all through the communities of color is, is where all that stuff yep. is built. And it's all connected because, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you're right. It's all connected. Why do we have such a great highway system, right? A freeway mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Well, why do they lead exactly to the ports? Why is like the freeway or the streets in port communities so nice? Because it's supposed to ensure that those trucks come in and out, carry that cargo. Where do they carry it? Most of the time they carry it to the Inland Empire. They carry it to Fresno. They mm -hmm. carry it to all these other places that are basically condemned as like the logistics of California. Yeah. And who's there to protect our air quality other than organizers and mm -hmm. other community members who are fighting for this, right? Yeah. Uh, so talking now more with your current work that you're doing, what current issues mm -hmm. are the most prevalent that you've seen and that you're working with? So for me, um, I work on a lot of issues, but one of the issues that I think is very impactful and I'm focusing on. I don't focus because I want to, I focus because my work is really working with community members. And then for them, there's an issue that they find to be a priority for their community. That's the issue that I will amplify. Mm -hmm. And right now, one of the issues is how can we talk to the PUC? And I'll tell you the acronym because there's so many <laughs> acronyms when we talk about environmental work. Mm -hmm. So the PUC or the CPUC is the California Public Utilities Commission. Okay. The California Public Utilities Commission can be described in two categories. There are the publicly owned, the POUs, and they are the um, investor owned. So what does that mean? That means when you get your bill for electricity, there's either two, well, there's a lot of things, but there's two things. It's either from Riverside, Los Angeles, or Colton, because they run their own, or you get the investor owned, which is PG&E, um, in mm. San Diego is SDGE and the SoCal, right? SCE. Mm -hmm. So these are the people that provide the electricity for us. What does that mean? It means that this commission, this the PUC regulates the big investors, um, the big investor-owned utilities. They specifically the ones I just mentioned, and the electric services provided all together. So what's important is that all together they provide about eighty percent of the electricity in our state. The PUC does not regulate publicly owned. That means that my work here in the Riverside, for example, it's me talking to Riverside mm -hmm. and the people that run Riverside, our city council members, and asking them, how are they going to ensure that the power plants, um, the gas plants there are going to be shut down in a way where we stop using gas? How can we ensure that the communities in this neighborhood are not impacted because they're already impacted by more warehouses. They're already impacted by rails. How can we ensure that gas plants are the things that we shut down when they're localized? That means they don't have to, they don't have, they could follow their own trajectory of how they, they ensure the health of these communities. When we talk about the PUC, it's how can we ensure that the PUC tells these investors that we need to protect our air quality? So what's interesting about that is that when we talk about the Public Utilities Commission, every two years, there's the another acronym. Okay, I'm, gonna, mm -hmm. I'm so sorry about this, y'all. Okay. If y'all want to hit me up, I will run through acronyms <laughs> for a whole day. 
you got the degree so um, uh <laughs> let, let us know what the actions mean so um we have the integrated resource plan and that is a um it's a proceeding that happens every two years that means that it is our turn to start ensuring that our voices are heard when they are coming up with this irp mm. So these are the main issues that I work on is ensuring that we can shut down these gas plants. It sounds like radical to some people because they're like, but how, how am I supposed to do that? There's a lot of other ways we are working on ensuring that the PUC listens to us because the reality is that us having gas is literally killing those communities that live next to it. And what's worse is that, you know, we are told that, well, if we, if we don't use gas, then during the heat wave, mm -hmm. um, we're going to have blackouts and that's going to impact everyone. Um, is it because the people, one, those gas plants have never been 100% like working. Like the, the infrastructure of them are not even um, successful all the time. It's not even the heat. It's literally their infrastructure. Two, this idea that we all need it. Um, the people that pay the most are frontline communities and not just financially, but also with their health. So then three, how can we ensure that us having electricity is not just killing other people who happen to live in those places, right? Yeah. So that's kind of like the big focus of my job right now, because these are the issues that the community members that I work with um, are bringing up. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what are some steps or actions or strategies that you could recommend to people who maybe are not in the opportunity that you are to actually be doing the groundwork? Uh, how can we as people, as, as just civilians who are who want to care for our communities, um, how can we get involved in climate change that you have found to be the most effective and impactful? That's a great question. The first thing I would tell you is that you know, I do have a awesome education, mm -hmm. but we learn the most is from the coalitions that I work with, from the people on the ground who are doing the work. And the first thing you do is you, I mean, we're in 2023. So instant Instagram, mm -hmm. TikTok, even Google, look for your local grassroots organization that's doing EJ work or go to your local, um, it's an environmental health justice fair. work. Yeah, so, environment. Yeah. Yes, environmental <laughs> justice work. Sorry, another acronym. <laughs> um, so look for like a local group that's saying, hey, we want to fight against environmental justice. Or let's say you're being impacted by warehouses. Look up, you know, groups that are fighting warehouses. And if you don't know, you can go to look up your local city hall. When are they having a meeting? And, and just look at their agenda. Usually that's coming up. If you're continuously being impacted by warehouses, they have to be approved somewhere. Mm. You go, you listen to public comments. Public comments are when you get to talk on an issue. Usually they give you two minutes, wow. three minutes. It just depends based on your city. But you could go there and like listen to what your community members are saying. And if you don't have any coalitions or any groups that work on environmental justice, you could always start one. It just takes mm. you to want to like voice your concerns. Mm -hmm. um, civic engagement is not just voting. Civic engagement is talking to your neighbors about issues. Mm -hmm. If there's a big um, board that says a lot of numbers and you're like, I have no idea what that is, look it up on your city hall. It usually means that there's something coming and mm -hmm. it's a section that tells you this, 
this land is going to be either rezoned or sold, or it is going to be constructed into A, B, and C. You look it up on your city hall, and that's how you find out what it is. Honestly, the first thing you want to do is just find other voices that are echoing what you're saying. And that's how you start getting engaged. And if you don't know any local ones, then look outside your city. Because that means there might be another city. Look for a city that has a gas plant. Look for a city that's impacted by a lot of warehouses. You could always help them and then bring them to your fight at your city. It's always all of us creating solidarity and creating these little pockets of people fighting that will eventually expand. And, you know, look up the PUC if you're here in California. We have... You know, I'll like, you'll see me there doing my public comment. So yeah, yeah. these are little ways of becoming involved and, you know, just being able to fight back. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely strength in, in numbers um, when you get people organizing a, towards like a central goal or just like you said, voicing out your concerns that you that you are experiencing. Um, great. Well, thank you so much. I once again, thank you for, for joining us. It was such a pleasure to talk to have this space and to hear about the communities that are so often overlooked and left without proper support and resources. And to wrap up this episode, we'd love to give you uh, 60 seconds. If there's anything you'd wanna share about, uh, let us know. I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, it's we are always taught to believe that or to normalize what's happening in our neighborhood. We normalize all these trucks running mm -hmm. by next to schools. We normalize seeing warehouses next to schools. We, at least in the Inland Empire, it seems very normalized. But the reality is that it just takes one of us to be like, you know what, I don't like that. Let me message, let me send a, a letter or an email to my city hall, to my elected officials. Let me send a letter to my governor let me talk to my neighbors and see how we together can learn about the impacts that are happening in our neighborhood. How can we learn about the air quality here? Once we start taking those steps, we're going to realize there's so many other people that they didn't know that they can do that. They didn't know that they could stop these trucks from always going to the warehouse next to their kid's school because you can fight the city to get this warehouse out of your, out of your neighborhood. There are ways. I mean, I think um, the community of Colton, there's called the, the Colton Coalition. Um, they created the first uh, moratorium for warehouses. And what we see, especially during the COVID and well, during the pandemic, we saw how air quality changed so drastically for these communities. Mm -hmm. So that tells us that it doesn't just take COVID for us to realize how we're impacted. We're impacted all the time. And it's going to take us to just like, continue to push forward yeah what i'm yeah what i'm saying is you know keep luchando we're gonna do <laughs> it they can't stop us they can try but they won't mm. voices are loud actions are louder <laughs> yes always um, and As a special ask, we at Change the Chamber would also like to remind listeners to sign up for a current petition that urges President Biden and the EPA Administrator Reagan to act boldly and swiftly to finalize and implement the strongest possible pollution standards by May of 2024. 
uh, to meet our climate, public health, and environmental justice goals, which is a lot of what we've been talking about during this podcast. And so you can go ahead and, uh, which you can find in the description of this podcast, or go to the Climate Action Campaign website and hover over priorities, click on solutions for pollution, and then you'll find the petition link uh, to sign there if you'd like. But thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us today. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Climate. Uh, Before you go, don't forget to like us, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. Uh, Follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk About Climate Pod and Twitter at Talk Talk Climate Pod. And check out our website, changethechamber.org. And you can find all those links in the description. And with that, this was Let's Talk About Climate. Thank you.